Um, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, as we start. 1 Corinthians 15, we're in the second to last week of our series called Exploring the Essentials. Um, in this series, Austin and I, uh, we've kind of tried to set it up this way using the analogy, and we've said that every church, a healthy church, should have both an open hand and a closed hand, right? And again, in the open hand are those things where we're just going to be generous with one another, uh, where we can disagree on some stuff. It's okay if we, if we don't agree on every single thing. Uh, we don't have to pick silly fights. We don't have to argue about every little thing. Every little matter of practice and doctrine is not an occasion to get mad and, and, and leave the church over, right? Like, there are some things we can disagree on, and we can be brothers and sisters in Christ, and it is okay. Um, at the same time, a healthy church needs to have a closed hand, Right? And in those closed hand are your essentials. Those are the things that make you distinctly Christian and the church, okay? So there are things doctrinally that we need to believe, and if we don't, then, then we're just not, we're not Christian or the church, right? We just can't go, ah, believe whatever you want, right? We've got to have some things we go, no, this is who we are. This is absolutely what we believe, okay? And so this series has been about the closed hand. What goes in that closed hand? What do we believe that we need to be firm on, okay? And so this morning, it's actually my favorite thing to talk about. The doctrine we're discussing is salvation. In other words, I get to talk to you about the best news in the world. It's something we call the gospel, right? Like, I get to preach the gospel. It's, it's literally my favorite thing to talk about. And so my hope is that I can unpack this in a way that is very, very clear, and we can walk away with a deeper appreciation and understanding of what Christ accomplished for us at the cross, Okay? Here is our statement on salvation as a church, okay? The way that we have worded this statement, that we believe Christ died for our sin in our place. We believe Christ was resurrected, conquering the power of sin and death, and we believe we are saved by grace through faith, okay? And so to give you some text for where we have kind of worded and how we've kind of worded that, there's a lot of text in the Bible that talk about the work of Christ, you can read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the biographies of the life of Jesus. And they explain, it's interesting, like only two of the Gospels talk about the birth of Jesus, but all of them give a lot of information about the last week of his life, his death, burial, and resurrection, okay? It is of utmost importance, okay? And so the Apostle Paul then later, writing to the church in Corinth and then in Ephesus, he's going to sort of explain what exactly Christ did for us. And so um, we'll start in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll read uh, just the first four verses. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, now I would remind you brothers. So that's important. Um, Paul's talking to Christians here. He's not writing this to people that don't know Jesus, have never heard the gospel, uh, outsiders. He's literally writing to the church, people that already know the gospel, are familiar with the gospel, and yet he continually reminds them of the gospel. Okay, so again, we've said this before, but the gospel is not something that you sort of receive and then put it on a shelf so that you can go to heaven one day when you die. The, the gospel is this thing that we sort of live more fully into, like it matters for life. It ought to transform us and change us in the way that we do things. Okay, so Paul's reminding Christians of the gospel, right? I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first 
importance, okay? So this is what Paul's saying. Of all the stuff you can know, of all the things that you can sort of study and memorize and when it comes to uh, Christianity and doctrine and theology, Paul's going to say, this is the most important thing, okay? This is of first importance, okay? He says, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on to say how he appeared then after his resurrection to a whole lot of people, okay, proving his resurrection. So Paul's telling the church, guys, this is the most important thing you can know. This is the most important thing you can believe. This is the most important thing for you to commit yourself to, that Jesus died for your sin. He was buried, and three days later, he rose again, okay? That's the most important thing. And then over in Ephesians chapter 2, a little bit to the right, in Ephesians 2, Paul writes to kind of, again, explain what Christ did for us. And here's the way it reads in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, that's kind of depressing if we stop right there, isn't it? We're all sinners and by nature children of wrath, all right? Let's pray and be dismissed. No, that's not the end of the text, right? Like there's, there's more to the story, right? That's, that's pretty bad. I know we don't like to talk about wrath and God's anger. We got to talk about that here in, in just a minute. But it goes on. This is like, again, the most beautiful words in, that, that you'll ever hear. Okay, verse four starts like this, but God, okay? You're all doomed, oh, but God, right? Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He's raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, okay? And so those are some texts where you can kind of see our statement on salvation and how we've worded it about Christ died for us. He rose again, and then it is by grace. It's not something we earn or work our way towards. It's not something like, you know, we do all the good stuff, and hopefully we appease God so that he, you know, lets us into heaven. Like, no, it's a gift. Salvation is a gift. There is nothing left for us to do. Christ has done it all. That's what we believe about salvation right now. What I want to do today is I want to just try to give you, hopefully, a deeper appreciation for the gospel and for what Christ did. In order to do that, we have to really fully understand and grasp what Christ did for us. And so um, I kind of, I use this analogy in the first service. Um, I did not grow up playing the game of golf. I don't know if we have any golfers in the room. I actually, no one in my family played golf. No one in my extended family played golf. I kind of thought golf was dumb. Like people want to walk around for hours in the sun hitting a ball with sticks. Like it just seemed kind of weird to me. Golf was a game, you know, you put quietly on in the background while you take a nap. That's what golf was for, right? 
Uh, some of you are like, yeah, it's really great for that. Um, and so I just didn't, I didn't understand it. Like, I didn't understand how, I knew that it was a game, and I'd see it, and I was like, all right, great. Um, but I just didn't really have an appreciation or see the beauty in a game like golf. And so when I was in college, I had some friends that were like, Dave, let's all go play golf. And I was like, I don't play golf. Oh, that's okay. It's not a problem. Well, I don't have any clubs. Oh, we'll find you some clubs. And so they found me a left-handed set of clubs to borrow. Uh, that's quite tricky, by the way. And I go play golf for the first time. And I'm just going to be honest with you. It did not go well, right? It was miserable. I was miserable. Uh, I, I just was, I mean, I was hitting the ball like a baseball player hits it. I mean, I was shanking it right, shanking it left, looking for my ball all over the My friends were like, just pick it up. Let's go. Like, it was not a fun experience for me. I was literally all day long going, I'm never playing this stupid game ever again. I don't know why anybody would want to do this. This seems like a giant waste of time. And then I got to the last hole on the course, okay? We're playing out of town. There was a beautiful, like, elevated tee box. So you're hitting kind of uh, off this, like, ledge, and you can see down, and there's the whole fairway, and then the green way in the distance. And, and I was, at this point, I just didn't care. And I was just like, whatever. I just teed it up. And, and guys, I, I actually hit it really good for the first time all day. Like, it actually went the way a golf ball is supposed to go. It, it got off the ground, right? And, it, and it, went, it went in the air and it went straight. All my friends were like, Dave, what, where did that come from? And of course, I was like, well, guys, clearly I'm now a golfer, right? Like, <laughs> I, I can do this, right? And here's the thing. Like, some of you are like this. Like, you went and played golf and you've gone and like the whole round, you hate it. But you hit that one really good shot that keeps you coming back, right? That one really good shot, you're like, oh, I love this game, Right? That's the way it was for me. I hit this one beautiful shot, and I was like, I kind of like golf now. So I started getting into it. I started, like, I'd go to the range, and I would practice hitting, hitting different balls, different clubs, different distances. I'd work on some short game stuff. I would watch golf on TV, not to just take a nap, but to actually go, man, those guys are amazing. Look at that shot. Like, when I began to understand the game, it gave me a greater appreciation, and I was able to see the beauty in the game of golf, Right? And so I went from someone who was like, yeah, okay, golf's a game, whatever, to someone that was like, man, this is amazing. I love this. And so here's my point. Like some of us, we've been in church a long time, and when it comes to salvation, when it comes to what Christ did for us at the cross, we're a little bit like that. Like on some level, we go, yeah, Christ died on the cross for my sin. I know that. But we don't maybe fully understand or grasp exactly what he accomplished for us there. And my hope is that if we can begin to understand more fully what Christ, uh, what he did for us, like when he hung on the cross and said, it is finished, man, what, what happened in that moment? That, that when we understand that, it'll give us a deeper appreciation for the gospel It'll give us an opportunity to see the beauty and the depth of the gospel, and it will absolutely change our lives, okay? So I want to talk about the gospel, and I want to just be as clear as I can in unpacking it, but here's the thing. Before we can talk about God's unbelievable love and grace and forgiveness poured out towards sinners, we also have to talk about some really uncomfortable stuff, right? We've got to talk about things like, you know, sin, We've got to talk about things like God's justifiable, righteous wrath or anger towards sin and sinners. We've got to talk about things like, you know, blood and death. Everybody fired up right now? Man, glad I came to church. Sin, God's wrath, blood and death. Here we go, right? Like, amen, right? No, it is a little bit uncomfortable, but we have to understand, we have to understand 
those things before we can fully appreciate what God did for us, right? And so um, I'll put it this way. In order to fully rightly understand the significance of the cross and what Christ accomplished for us, we have to first talk about sin, anger, wrath. We must discuss blood and death. We've got to just talk about those things. And so here's where we'll start, right? We are all sinners. I hope that is not shocking news for you, right? We are all sinners. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. We sin in more ways than you can imagine, right? We, um, we sin in our thoughts, in our motives, our actions, our words. I mean, we sin by omission, where we fail to do what we know is right, and we sin by commission, where we do things we know we should not do, okay? The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone's turned to their own way. There is none righteous, no, not one. So that means if you're sitting here and you're like, I'm not really a sinner, I'm not that bad, you're the worst kind of sinner. You know why? Because you're a sinner who doesn't think you're a sinner. Like you think you and Jesus have the same resume. You don't, right? He's sinless and perfect. We're not, okay? We're not. And so we have to start with this idea that we're all sinners at the core of who we are. Sin is a problem and our sin must be dealt with. It must be paid for. God must pour out his righteous, justifiable wrath on sin and sinners. People don't understand this, right? People are like, I don't, God's supposed to be love and gracious and kind. What do you mean he's wrathful? Listen, we can't just kind of pick and choose the, the, like the God that we, we like. We like these things about God, don't like these things about God. God is a good, good father. And, and so it, these things are not mutually exclusive, right? A good father at times must be justifiably angry. So here's what I would, I'd use this in the way of analogy. Um, I love my children, right? I love my kids. But like, I don't, I don't just love my kids and like hate everyone else's kids, right? Like, I, I mean, my, my home is open. My boys have friends. They invite friends over. We love to have other people, other families over. And so we would say it this way, like our home is open. It's welcome to all. Other kids can come and play with my kids. It's fine. But let's say I open my home and I welcome everyone, but some of the kids that show up, they are like older, they kind of bully, they're mean to, they abuse my kids. You know, my, they take their stuff, they break their stuff, they punch them in the face, they hit them on the ground, they, they kick them while they're, you know, down there. My kids are laying on the ground crying and there's some other kid just kicking them and beating them. Listen, as a dad, if I don't, like, if I'm not angry at that or I don't stop that, if I just go, well... I love everybody, so just whatever, you know, right? On some level, I am not loving. Are you with me? Like, I'm not loving if I just let that stuff go. And so God is love. God is gracious. God is kind. But God, as a good father, also must pour out his wrath on sin. In fact, I would say it's precisely the fact that God is loving that he must punish sin because sin and evil and injustice are enemies of God's people. So God can't just kind of wink at sin as if it's no big deal and go, well, you know, whatever, I love everybody. No, God's holy and righteous and he must punish sin. Our sin must be paid for. Our sin must be paid for. Something or someone must, um, must pay for our sin. And so here's where we then shift and get to talk about blood. Yay, right? Okay, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There has to be a sacrifice. Something has to pay for our sin. 
And so that's where the blood comes. There's a lot of blood in the Bible. The Bible talks a lot about blood. The cross of Christ, lots of blood, right? And again, um, for those that are not familiar with Christianity, that's probably going to seem a little bit odd that we, you know, we talk about blood a little bit. But here's the thing. Like, when I was in high school, uh, we, had, we were having a, a student night, a youth night at our church after church on a Sunday evening. And so our youth pastor was like, guys, invite, invite your friends, man. Invite all your friends, even those that don't go to church, those that don't know Jesus, invite all your friends. It'll be a great, like, non-threatening kind of environment where they can come to church. And, and so just invite them all. And so that's what I tried to do. I tried to invite my unchurched, non-Christian friends to come to church and then stay for the youth night. A few of them said, okay, we'll go. They show up to church first. And I'm not kidding. We sang some hymns that night, right? Uh, if you grew up in a denominational church and you sang some old, good old gospel hymns, right? Some of these will sound familiar to you. Uh, let me just kind of briefly run through the hymns that we sang that night at church, right? The first one went like this. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Okay, that was first song. Second song, are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Followed by, I kid you not, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. My friends looked at me and they were like, what kind of weird vampire church have we walked into? Like, you guys sing about blood and you celebrate blood. It just seems odd. Like, this is crazy. And I'm sitting here like a little church kid going, yeah, I guess it kind of does. Like, that's, I never thought about it. But yeah, we do sing a lot of songs about blood. I could go on and on because if you're familiar with the old hymnals, there's a whole lot of songs about blood where we sing about blood and celebrate blood. And to someone that's not familiar with church, that's weird, right? That's just weird. But the blood is important. The Bible talks a lot about blood. God connects blood with death and sin for a couple of reasons, right? Number one, blood is connected with death. In the scriptures, blood is synonymous with it is connected with death. And that's what sin leads to. Sin leads to death. God talking to Adam and Eve in the garden said, if you sin, if you do this thing that I tell you not to do, guess what? You're going to die. Sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. And so there's the connection between blood and death. Secondly, let's be honest, blood is rather um, appalling to us, isn't it? Like blood's kind of disgusting. Um, our student pastor, Chris, he's not here today. Uh, you can make fun of him about this later, but he, he can't stand the sight of blood. Like, he gets nauseous, he gets, like, he'll turn, like, ghost white, needs to sit down, like, he cannot, he'll pass out. He cannot handle blood at all. So, like, when a student, like, skins their knee or cuts themselves at camp, he's like, Emma, somebody else take care of that. Like, I, I'm out, right? And, and literally, that's, that's kind of the lesson, right? Like, blood is rather appalling and disgusting to us, and it's designed so that we would understand, like, that's the way God feels about our sin. It is appalling to him. Sin is disgusting to God. He hates sin. He hates it. And so there's this connection with, with, with blood because, again, without the shedding of blood, without the sacrifice, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so, again, in the, in the brief time we have left, I want to try to just explain to you what, when Christ hung on the cross and said, it is finished, what was happening in that moment. And to do that, I want to talk about the most popular day, um, kind of the biggest holiday, if you will, 
um, for, for the Jewish people in the Old Testament was Yom Kippur. It was called the Day of Atonement. Atonement means at one mint, okay? So the idea is that sin separates us from God. But atonement is this idea that we can, again, something can pay for the sin, and then we can once again be restored in right relationship with God, okay? So the way it would work in the Old Testament is the people would all gather together as a nation, and the high priest would step up. The high priest was kind of like a mediator between God and the people, and they would bring out two goats, okay? Two goats would come out on the Day of Atonement. And basically, the high priest would spend the day confessing the sin of all the people. I'm sure that was a rather long, brutal day, right? Like if we just did that in here and only in this room, not even a whole nation, I just mean in this room, it'd be like me getting up going, God, some of us are liars, and some of us gossip, and some of us, you know, we're cheaters and we're adulterers, and some of us, God, we're prideful and we're arrogant. Some of us are addicted to pornography or drugs or alcohol, and it would be this really sad time of me spending hours just confessing all the sin, right? Sounds exciting? Yeah, not really right? That was what the Day of Atonement, the priest confesses all the sin of the people. And then the priest takes that first goat, this pure, spotless, blameless, innocent goat, and he kills the goat, just cuts the neck of the goat, blood just spills out everywhere, right? In front of, can you imagine kids there, everybody watching? Like it, brutal, just brutal. And that goat was used in a substitutionary way, that symbolically the goat didn't do anything wrong, but the goat paid the price for the sin of all the people. And the people would understand, my sin caused that. As horrific as that was to watch, my sin caused that. That goat was the sacrifice for my sin. That goat paid the price for my sin. Listen, that's what Jesus does at the cross, right? John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus goes to the cross. He's the Lamb. He's the goat. The theological word that we use for this is propitiation. The New Testament uses the word four different times to describe what Jesus does, right? You want to impress your friends this week? Try to find a way to use propitiation in a sentence in a conversation this week, right? Propitiation, it means that, um, again, something that appeases or conciliates an offended power. God is offended by our sin. Our sin must be paid for. Something must pay for our sin. So Jesus goes to a cross His blood is spilled. And so the wrath of God, rather than being poured out on us, is poured out on Jesus, right? He is our substitute. He is our sacrifice. He is the propitiation for our sin. So now, those of us that are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Why? Because our sin's been paid for. All of it. It's done. Like, it is finished. We don't have to pay for our sin because Jesus paid for our sin, right? That's That's part of it. That's the first goat. Jesus was the sacrifice. The second goat was called the scapegoat. We still use the terminology today, right? The second goat, the sins would be confessed, and then that goat would would be set free. That goat got to go, you know, live his goat life and do whatever it is that goats like to do, right? He's, he's, He's free. And the symbolism is that not only is our sin paid for, but our sin is is cleansed. Our sin is gone. He remembers it no more. Um, the theological word we use is the word expiation, right? Expiation is the act or the process whereby something is taken away or expiated, okay? So here's the picture of what Jesus does at the cross. Not only is our sin paid for, but, but our sin is also like 
it's gone. Like, it's removed. He remembers it no more. The Bible says that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. What that means is all of the guilt, all of the shame, all of the dirtiness and filthiness, the things that we have done and the things that have been done to us, he wipes that stuff away. And we can be new creations in Christ. And so here's the thing. When Jesus hangs on the cross and says, it is finished, we remember that he didn't just pay the penalty for our sin, the propitiation, but he also cleanses us. He, 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 it's gone. It's done. It's remembered no more. Do you see why the gospel is such unbelievably good news? The wrath of God that must be poured out on sin goes on Christ, not us. In addition, our sins are wiped away. They're done. They're gone. They are expiated. That's why it's such this, this horrible death of an innocent man like Jesus, we can call it good news. And again, Paul's going to say the gospel seems like foolishness to a lot of people because it does sound rather, you know, crazy that, you know, an innocent guy was tortured and died? What's good about that? Well, when you begin to understand what Christ accomplished for us, it makes it unbelievably good news. The wrath of God and the love of God sort of collide at the cross of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is satisfied and the love of God is poured out towards sinners when he becomes our substitute. The final thing I want to mention really quick We've tried to tie one of our doctrines every week in the series to a practice, okay? And so the practice we want to talk about is the practice of uh, the sacrament of communion or the Lord's Supper. You might have heard us talk about it, right? I just want to read this text for you so you'll kind of get an understanding. It's a tangible way for us to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup. And after supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So communion or the Lord's Supper, it's, it's this really tangible thing that the church, that Christians have done, they've practiced and participated in, whereby we take a piece of bread and we, we may dip it in uh, juice or wine. And the bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you at the cross. And the juice or the wine represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you at the cross. And you take that in a spirit of just thankfulness for the cross and for what Jesus did. And so... The way we're going to end our service, the band's going to come back out, and they're going to lead us in a song about the crazy, reckless love of God. And we're going to offer you an opportunity to respond, right? And so here's a couple ways you might respond. For those of you that are not Christians, or maybe you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever placed my faith in Jesus. Like, I have no idea. I'm not really sure. One way that you can respond, we're going to have some people back in front of the sound booth. Um, they'd be happy to talk with you or pray with you. It's a real quick, short, simple, you know, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I believe in your sacrifice at the cross for me. I believe you took my place. You paid for my sin and I want you to be Lord and Savior of my life. That sounds really simple. It is really simple. Like you can settle that today. Like you don't have to leave here going, I don't, I don't know. I, you, can, you can settle that today. We have people that will talk with you, pray with you. For those of you that are Christians, right? 
You, you know the gospel and you, you, you've done that. You've come to a moment in your life where you've done that. We're going to invite you to receive communion. If you would like to, you know, you're welcome to. During the song, we have um, some extra communion stations around the auditorium. And you can make your way to one of those stations and you can either take a piece of bread, dip that in the juice and take communion, or you're welcome to take, we have some prepackaged communion where you kind of pull off the top, there's a little wafer and then there's the, the little bit of, of grape juice there. Whatever you're more comfortable doing. But for those that are believers, if you would like to, we just want to sort of invite you or encourage you to receive communion today, this tangible act where we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, that he is my propitiation. He took my sin away. He paid for it. And he also removed it completely. He also removed it completely. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful today for your great sacrifice for us at the cross. We could never say thank you enough for that. We're grateful, Jesus, that you went to that cross and that you gave up your life in our place for our sin. We're grateful today, God, that it really is finished. There is no work left to be done. We don't have to measure up so that you will love us. But God, you've told us that you already do love us, and that's why your son Jesus went to a cross. So I pray today we would remember your great sacrifice. We'd be grateful. I pray today, God, we would have a more full understanding of what you accomplished and that we would have a deep appreciation for the gospel. We would see the beauty in it and that it would absolutely change our lives. We pray this today in Jesus' name.